Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about truths, personal, factual, flattened, and imagined. I've been thinking about crime, punishment, and justice. And I've been thinking once again about our brains, perspective, community, and the ability to transform. My guest today is Emma Copley Eisenberg. She is a writer and a brave soul, willing to look into the depths of herself and the lives of others to unearth whatever uncomfortable truths may reside, to hopefully open the way for some light to emerge. Her book, The Third Rainbow Girl, The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia, is a topic of our conversation. Welcome, Emma, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with um, where you start in the book, which is 16 facts. And um, as one reads to the book, um, one of the, the topics that that you think about a lot throughout is the, the distinction between a fact and a truth and um, mm-hmm. the the reality that so many of the truths we hold may or not be factual um, and certainly may not be a, a, in alignment with others other people's truths. Um, the 16th one is uh, Elizabeth Jondro hitchhiked with Vicki and Nancy across the United States. In the mythology of these events, Liz is known as the third girl, though she did not die. She's not a girl anymore, but a woman with a son and a rich network of love. When I think of all this as a story, I think of her. What made you decide to start with the 16 facts that surround um, the events that transpire in the book that you talk about, but also your experience of writing the book? For sure, yeah. It was a long process, a long road to writing this book, and I tried a lot of different ways to sort of take all of these different interviews and research and um, questions and things I was grappling with and arrange them in a form that would make sense for a reader to, you know, get the deepest picture of these events and um, true things, which is indeed the way the book starts, uh, came very late in the process. It was, I believe, uh, about just a few months before we decided to try to take the book out um, to publishers. And essentially, I think I was trying to teach myself at the very, you know, fairly at the end of the process, what it was I was truly writing about, and it became kind of a a roadmap or a North Star for what I was trying to say in the book. Um, But exactly, you know, I I decided to phrase it that way because there are so many uh, pieces of information, conflicting accounts, just so many stories that were at odds with each other. And to begin the book this way was my attempt to say, like, okay, what do... I actually know to be true, um, both in a factual sense and in my own kind of sense of of the truths that were guiding this process. I did also want to push back a little bit against um, the sort of true crime uh, moniker that's been put on the book to some extent, and also just what we expect from true crime um, in the way that we usually want to find or we usually expect to find um, a dead body, often a dead woman's body on page one. And I did really want to communicate to readers of the book when they picked it up that this was going to be a different kind of book, a book that um, was going to be more about why these events happened than, than who did it really. But um, yeah, to kind of like return in a roundabout way to your question. Um, yeah. The book has, sort of three main elements or highways, the uh, investigation into these two murders that happened in 
1980 in Southern West Virginia, as you mentioned. Um, but then also uh, the second strand is really more about the place itself, this community in Southern West Virginia where the crimes occurred and the ways that learning more about that place, that specific community, which is very rich and full of contradictions, can teach us a lot, not just about the events themselves, but also about the sort of larger story of Appalachia in America. And then the third um, portion of the book or strand is my own story coming to this community from elsewhere, uh, working as a federal anti-poverty volunteer with AmeriCorps. So I didn't come to this story as a reporter. I came to this story just as a person, um, as a community member, and then it began to obsess me over time. Um, but yes, I think the reason that the title ended up being The Third Rainbow Girl and that I phrase it that way um, at the end of Two Things is that I thought a lot of, you know, different ways about telling the story originally, maybe as fiction. Um, that's my training more as a short story writer and a novelist. But we've seen in recent days and um, many in many other moments in the literary community, writing fiction has um, its own distinct like pitfalls and ways that um, unethical uh, sort of occupying of a position that's not yours can really overcome um, the work that's gone into a book. So I, I ended up feeling that it was more more right, more true, more accurate to make very clear that I'm not from West Virginia that, um, and to make really clear up front to readers that, um, you know, this is a story not told from the inside, but told writing alongside you know, many of these people and their truth. So the third rainbow girl is a real person in the sense that it's this woman, Liz Jondro, um, who hitchhiked with her friends, you know, cross country in 1980, had this very beautiful, like three trifecta road trip together as young women, sort of exploring the world, going on an adventure together. Uh, and I did not know that she had existed when I first heard about these cases when I was living in West Virginia. But later, um, when I learned of her, she was kind of the person that gave me a way into telling the story and um, gave me a way into my curiosity and the idea that maybe I could tell this story as nonfiction, that there were many things I did not know, I did not know, and um, it would actually better serve the story to talk to um, some of the real people who had been involved. And what she said to me sort of from the first interview was, you know, I wasn't harmed, I wasn't physically harmed in the sense that I parted ways with my friends and they went on to die and I didn't, but she felt, you know, extremely traumatized and carried a lot of survivor's guilt um, because of her involvement. And so that idea of not being physically harmed, but being traumatized um, really spoke to me and resonated in some ways with my own experience. And then as I dug more deeply into the research and reporting, it became clear that um, there were many others, many people in Pocahontas County who had been traumatized by the crimes, yes, but really the investigation um, of the crimes in their own community and that many people were, in my opinion, falsely accused, falsely incarcerated for periods of time ranging from, you know, two months to nine years for these crimes and that even though they, they did not die, they were not involved necessarily in the actual violence, they absorbed a lot of that trauma and that just started to feel kind of like the most true thing of all, if you will. 
You mentioned in the book your experience in a writer's group where the man, Tim, who found the body um, was in tears while reading a poem that he wrote about the experience. And this was so many years later, and you're still hearing about the story while you're living there. Was that surprising to you at first that, that people were still talking about it and still being affected by it so much? Yeah, it was. I think things always make more sense in hindsight, right? But it makes so much sense to me now that I learned of these crimes in a writer's group, you know, in a a space devoted to storytelling and narrative. And um, that actually, even though I didn't hear a lot about these murders in the regular world, sort of at work, hanging out with friends, that one would start to hear about them in an artistic space or a space devoted to words makes a lot of sense now. Um, Yeah, and this was a person who I would go on to know in lots of other capacities, a doctor, community member, and father to a friend of mine who was like a young guy. And yeah, he had found the bodies when he was very young and um, was very new to the community. And um, I think that this, these events like really shaped his sense of, of who he was and his relationship to the community was my understanding based on, um, yeah, that moment, which just exposed so much, um, sadness and just the ways that even though it didn't happen to him, I think it really did, um, you know, influence his life a great deal. And he then also had to go back and participate, you know, in the trial and the second trial for the, cause there were two trials and just, you know, that that lasted, more than 20 years for him yeah the lens that you look through when you're writing the book um is is very narrow and also very wide and i think as a reader surprising the number of people that were affected by this murder of two two women who were not from the community who had not been in the community but a few Mm -hmm. hours um and and you know you talk a little bit about their family and and their direct experience but it, it really was so astounding to learn about the number of people in the community and the depth to which they were affected for their entire lives. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we're learning more and more about that as a culture, this idea um, sort of of secondhand trauma and also of inherited trauma, like something that just seemed to come up again and again um, in a way that surprised me was the next sort of generation of everyone involved. So the children of the people who had investigated the crimes, the prosecutor, the um, sheriff and West Virginia state police officers, those children had, you know, a lot of feelings and and were influenced by what had happened to their parents, the children of all of the guys who were arrested or accused or wrongly incarcerated, who ended up being some of the people that I became friends with and then became intimate as well with, um, that those people, you know, they knew what had happened and, and felt it in their bodies to some extent. And then also, um, you know, the young women I was working with because I was working at a nonprofit for teenage girls while I lived in the county, you know, they had absorbed, I think, um, this story as well and just what did it mean for them. Um, and then also just I was surprised by the ways that this story and its sort of next generation tentacled out into so many far and wide um, parts of the United States, you know, into Arizona and Utah and Long Island and California, um, just the ways that, you know, everyone who has children or everyone who um, has been exposed to these events as a kid, like carries them in ways that I think we don't always think about. And it just became so clear to me 
um, how much we don't know about like trauma that's carried in the body and also trauma that's inherited not just from our parents but also from our communities. How do you think the unique history of West Virginia um, colored the community's experience of of the murders and then the the community's <clears throat> reaction to it? Yeah, um, I probably will, you know I'll never know for sure, and I do not purport to be the expert. But what I what my research shows and what people were saying in the county, and then um, I've been you know lucky enough to get a really pretty deep education in Appalachian history and literature from living in the area and connections I've made um, with writers who are from the region is that, yeah, I mean, West Virginia is the only state in what we currently call Appalachia that is entirely within those bounds. There are many states um, that are partially within Appalachia. West Virginia is the only one that's entirely Appalachia as we understand it. So it's a very interesting um, state to look to, to learn more about Appalachia's history and the ways that mainstream America has essentially, you know, exploited and oppressed Appalachia as a region and West Virginia as a state in particular, pretty much since the beginning of this country's existence. I was surprised um, in researching and reporting for this book, uh, the ways that the sort of stereotypes we have about what it means to be from West Virginia or from Appalachia really formed um you know, in the 1700s, like the ways that we think about um, who has land and who doesn't and class and what that means about people was a very direct holdover from essentially from from British ideas of aristocracy and who matters and who doesn't. I owe a, a great debt to Nancy Eisenberg. I wish a relation of mine, but sadly not, mm-hmm. um, who wrote the book White Trash, uh, The Untold History of Class in America. And then also to Elizabeth Catt, who wrote this amazing book called What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. And she says that, um, with a lot of other Appalachian scholarship as well, that, you know, essentially it was not an, it is not an accident that broader America has these extremely offensive and calcified ideas about who lives in West Virginia, because it's in our interests as a nation to make the people in a place from which we want to take their resources, you know, dehumanized. It's, it makes us uh, feel better and it's easier in many ways for mainstream America to think of West Virginians as less than, as backwards, because um, we've constructed, you know, our energy and our jobs such that we, you know, have taken natural resources, um, emotional resources, uh, historical resources from this region, you know, pretty much since the inception of this country. So, yeah, that that all of this is not an accident, and the ways that um, West Virginia uh, has been stereotyped, I think, also has filtered down into the people that live there, which makes a lot of sense if you think about the conversations we're having about like internalized racism or internalized sexism or internalized homophobia that it's not possible to live in a world where people think you are less than without absorbing some of that yourself. Well, and I think you make it so clear that they're dealing on a daily basis 
with the contradictions that they're living with that came out of yeah. this the civil war and and sort of their real situation from that mm-hmm. and that their political leanings are actually not uh, until very recently what they may have been characterized as um, and reflected mm-hmm. very different values and you say that the trial played out like a mini civil war um, what did that look like to you yeah yeah I think that um, what I tried to go into with that history that you're picking up on which I appreciate is that, yeah, the Civil War was um, in many ways the story of West Virginia's beginning, which was West Virginia breaking off from the state of Virginia and saying, like, we're not receiving the same opportunities. We're not um, you know, sort of a mini story of America. Like, no, you know, no taxation without representation. West Virginia was like, we're not getting what we need from this relationship and we don't want to uh, fight for slavery. We don't believe in it and it doesn't make sense in our state. So, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but for the main uh, sort of main thrust of why West Virginia left the state of Virginia, started their own state, fought for the union. Um, as you said, you know, they voted Democratic in every major election in U.S. history until the in early 90s. And yeah, I think the trial itself and the ways that the murders um, you know, interacted with that history in Pocahontas County is that, yeah, I think there was this great sense of shame of like, the world sees us as a joke. Um, you know, we have this like um, story about Appalachian men who are drunk and dangerous. And I think that many of the people involved in these events like internalized that story and then went on this kind of quest to like correct it. Like we will avenge these deaths. Like we will um, root out these bad apples in our community and make everyone whole again and we will protect women and our community and all of this and so it just became in my opinion like a way to um it was good intention in the sense that people were trying to bring justice and sort of tell you know the world that they were not this sort of um hick monster as i talk about in the book like that's the stereotype we have they're trying to say like we are not that like we are doing the best we can we are bringing witnesses from the community who want to right this wrong but um uh, sometimes like pushing against a story of yourself can also lead you down a dangerous path so in my opinion the the trial was a lot of community members you know trying to show up and do their best but it was still um perhaps uh reinforcing this idea of a story that may not be totally consistent with the facts of what actually happened and you had the advantage of having a personal experience of of living with a lot of young men um, who had grown up in the area and sort of being privy to experience sort of maybe how they were living through the the contradictions of the connection to the community and the love for it and the love for the land and then dealing with mm-hmm. the, the frustrations and maybe the, the elements that created this this sense of disconnection for them in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I think that was ultimately a piece of why I wanted to include, um, a first person section or two first person sections ended up in the book because yeah, these connections I had to young men when I was living in the region felt both really important and really confusing to me. Um, in the sense that I did feel that uh, living in, in this part of Southern West Virginia felt gendered in the sense that there were many more opportunities for young men in the region to stay and make a living in the sense of like manual labor and the kinds of jobs that are available there are you know, gen- generally seen as more available to men. But 
at the same point, I was working for this organization for young women to support them, to connect them to each other, to connect them to resources. And I just saw the young men that I knew, like, really struggling in similar ways and not having access to any kind of um, support or resources, you know, on their own terms. And yeah, there was, I think, just a great deal of many contradictory impulses that are characteristic of sexism all around this country and in some ways, you know, the world. But I saw it particularly playing out um, in this place in the sense of, yeah, I think there were ways that men were able to be really open and generous and almost and also physically affectionate with each other in ways that I haven't seen young men in other parts of America be able to do with each other. But then there was also, I think, a sense of uh, of this inherited shame of like, not only do we know this crime happened in our midst, we also can see that there is a lot of, you know, toxic masculinity and sexism playing out and we don't want to be a part of it, but also we don't know what to do differently. Um, and just like having close relationships with some of those folks was really painful and also um, beautiful to watch in a way. But I, I just came away from that experience feeling like, yeah, like sexism and misogyny is certainly something that we need to talk to young women about, but it's also something that we need to talk to young men about and that they need better resources to think about too. And if you think about the 20 years, you know, so much of the focus actually ended up being more on the men who were in some way involved um, until very recently where some some of the women um, detectives got more involved. But prior to that, there is this large group of men and, and throughout, as you say, the two trials and all of the investigation um, and conversations leading up to that. It, it really was sort of unbelievable um, as, as, yeah. as being introduced to the story, the, the number of people involved, the number of conversations, and then the aspect of the, the changing of the individual's um, memories and experiences uh, yeah. and testimony as to what happened. Mm-hmm. Yes, Um I was that something you were prepared for, like going in, or was that a surprise <laughs> to you too? No, it was a complete surprise to me. And I love that your podcast is interested in memory, um, so I can nerd out just for a moment. Which is that, yes, I thought that this case would have, um, you know, contradictory stories, would have some elements that didn't fit. But I was not at all prepared for the deep dive into learning about. Um, lost or recovered memories that this case would demand. And then also thinking about false confessions and why people make utterances um, in a criminal justice context that are not, you know, grounded in fact, there were recanted confessions in this case. Um, I think the, the part about memory that I spent the most time with and that gets the most space in the book is about this person, Pee Wee Walton, who, um, yes, he becomes sort of the state's, central witness or star witness in this prosecution against a local farmer from the area. And at times P.B. Walton says, you know, yes, I was there. I saw this person kill these women. And then other times he was not sure if he had been there at all. And he thought maybe he had dreamed it. And then other times he said, you know, I was there, but I forgot for 12 years, you know, that I was there. And these memories started coming back to me later. And, you know, if, if you look at uh, what we know about um, essentially memories that 
people don't have access to for long periods of time. There's certainly spaces in which that's true, you know, and we have seen some of that borne out recently, particularly in cases of sexual assault, where it's important and instructive to the brain to kind of put those memories away and not be able to access them. But in this particular case, you know, I did get to talk to memory experts where they were saying, this really isn't possible. Like the human brain doesn't Mm -hmm. function this way, like a tape recorder taking in truth, um, storing it away for later, that our brains are just so much more flawed and fallible than that. Um, And Mm -hmm. that this person, um, it seems to me most likely based on, you know, what what I learned that he too had been, you know, hearing this story for a long, long time of the ways that, you know, he was bad and the men around him were bad. And I think he felt at least on some plane, if not the one of entirely like this planet's truth that, that he was responsible. And, and Freud talks about this, you know, that there are ways that criminals will commit acts to feel that some relief, like I, I thought I was bad. And so I did a crime and now I can sort of pin that feeling of badness onto something. So I was trying to untangle, you know, what happened in the factual world also from um, these stories that many of the men who were tangentially involved told to law enforcement at various points. And I was trying to um, believe and, and take into consideration stories that may not be true in the real world, but still have something true to tell us about um, masculinity in this place, about sexism, about violence, and, and just kind of holding all of those stories at the same time, even though some of them you know, happened in the world, and in my opinion, some of them didn't. You talk about uh, a quote from Freud explaining that the guilt happens prior to the incident of the violent act, and that actually the violent act is, is a release, um, and, yeah. and that sort of an explanation of why, in some cases where we can understand why violence is happening, that it happens. And this one mm-hmm. character, Pee Wee, I mean, he, he contradicts his own story again and again, and, and he's actually, his original story is the only one, or one of few, that's actually corroborated by someone who throughout the 20 years never changes the story at all, to say, Say, no, nope, yeah. we were not there. This is what we were doing. Yeah. Um, and, and just sticks yeah. to it the entire time. And yet it's Pee Wee who becomes the witness who seems to have been sort of coerced into reimagining. Um, you also talk about some of the yeah. research where an imagined experience actually becomes a real memory. And I think we know that too from, yeah. from now the research on enhanced physical training, where people can imagine themselves mm-hmm. running faster or doing something better. And, and they actually not only have um, a, a mind memory, but a, a physical memory and, and muscles adjusting oh, to, that, to that experience. Um, why is this so relevant, not only to this particular case, but to our justice system as a whole? Because you talk about about that, that this misunderstanding of memory um, and how it affects mm-hmm. our ability to uh, mete out justice. For sure. I mean, in so many ways. I mean, one thing that certainly comes to mind is that one of the experts I spoke to, she advocates that our witness statement when we swear in a witness should be changed to do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and whatever it is you think you saw this idea that we should always understand um, eyewitness testimony as really open to interpretation and really imperfect. And that actually there's a lot of experts out there who believe that, you know, eyewitness testimony just 
has no place in courtrooms anymore. And I leave that to the you know criminal justice experts to debate all these issues. But I think just for us lay people to understand that, you know, eyewitness testimony is not, um, it's not perfect. And it's not even that people are lying. It's often just that the mechanics of the brain work in so many ways that we don't even understand ourselves. And also, I think we're seeing, um, you know, the, the case that I talk about in my book has a lot of things to say, I think, about, yeah, about police coercion, about um, false confessions, which, as we know, happen a lot more frequently than we'd like to think. Um, series like Making a Murder, which we saw use a young person, you know, coerced into a confession. Recent series like When They See Us about the Central Park Five case, like, these are all stories that did matter to me and that I consumed and I'm glad I did consume in many ways in terms of what they can teach us about, um, yeah, just sort of doubting these narratives of this person confessed, which means they're guilty or, you know, they got on the stand and lied about it. Like human motivation is just so much more complicated than that. And I think that this case in particular really taught me a lot about class and the way that class plays out in criminal justice, because, Essentially, a lot of these guys who were accused um, of the crime, essentially on a single witness statement, and then locked up for periods of time, ranging from two months to nine years, many of them stayed incarcerated in local county jails for you know up to a year or two years, essentially, because they couldn't make bail, uh, just very similar to the um, sort of indictment of the cash bail system that we're seeing um, around uh, youth of color in cities like New York and Chicago and Philadelphia, where I live, that these same issues really play out with class um, and education levels in rural areas as well. That these many of these guys, you know, seemed guilty or looked guilty because of the way they spoke or acted or because of their resources, and that's really um, an inappropriate and unjust way to to conduct an investigation. Yeah. You talk about the research of um, Loftison. She says the degree to which a witness is convinced of the truth of their memories is not always accurate and um, yeah. not always an accurate predictor of their actual basis of fact. And, and I think one thing we're learning more and more about how the brain works as well and is in this divided um, society we're living in now politically is that once someone determines their opinion about something or has a belief about something, yeah. the more that alternate facts are brought to their attention the stronger they hold on to their position and their belief, and that the brain totally. also will fill in the gaps of memory um, to support the original idea. And um, one of yeah. the, the lead investigators on the case, it seems determined very early on that the murder had been murders had been convicted committed by someone local, that that he had just made that determination. Yeah. Um, how much do you think that affected then his um, approach to the case and, and the way that the investigation transpired? Yeah, well, I got super interested in this idea of um, who believes what stories and what is sort of borne out in the psychological and sociological research we have today is that um, this question of why do I believe something where you, whereas you don't believe it we really don't have good answers as to why that is true. The best we can sort of say is that, you know, research says that based on our own experiences, our own stories, our own baggage that we bring to the table, these are the kind of things that determine if I find a story, quote, believable, whereas you or someone else might not, even though the facts are the same. So I think that was 
this, you know, this case is an interesting study in that because indeed, as you say, you know, the lead investigator in this case felt um, strongly that, that it was most likely someone local who had done these killings. And I think that that may also have had to do with um, this idea of storytelling and what's a satisfying story. And if you feel that, you know, you are, um, you need to be involved in changing a narrative or bringing justice or that the place where uh, this crime took place is in some way bad or culpable for these crimes, it will be a more satisfying story if it's someone from there who then can be rooted out and you know put away in jail. Whereas the other kind of theory of the crime that began to develop was that it was essentially a roving person guilty of a lot of other violence who just happened to be passing through the county at this time. Uh, and in many ways, the evidence better supports that theory, in my opinion, even though it's not a satisfying story to feel like, you know, randomly some person who we don't know, who's not from here, happened to be passing through at the exact same time that many other um, outsiders were passing through. I think that just, it wasn't an appealing story. It wasn't a satisfying story. And it always will feel kind of senseless. And I think um, there's something about our capacity as humans. Um, some, I, I learned a lot about the ways that as human beings, we want to construct stories that feel satisfying. We want to construct stories about what things happen and what they mean that are coherent, that have a meaning, that make us feel um, like we can understand the world better. And when things happen that seem random or senseless or just a total coincidence, it's very hard for us to to believe um, to believe those stories. And that's human nature, but it also can lead us, you know, to make mistakes. You talk about um, Kahneman's research from uh, the book Thinking Fast and Slow and, and the mm-hmm. two um, systems we have when we're analyzing information and then coming to a conclusions. And I'm wondering where you ended with it, because he says, oh, you know, this is something we can't change. And I'm like, oh, I don't think I, I think he's right about the way the process we work. But I, I think it can't be true that mm-hmm. that that can't change with a concerted effort of focus and an openness, mm-hmm. um, and an awareness that maybe that's what we're doing. Um, I'm wondering how you yeah. ended ended up on with your thoughts regarding that research. Yeah, I mean, I just got so obsessed with this book, this Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, as you mentioned, and um, his research is fascinating because essentially, yeah, what he says is we have sort of two systems in our brain. One is a sort of lazy, but, you know, um, hungering for meaning and coherent system that tends to take in a lot of information and essentially plop all that information into the easiest sort of low hanging, simplest story. Like she was bad or he was good or, it's all because he was crazy or it's all because, you know, she was too slutty or whatever it may be. These are the kind of stories that um, our brain sort of naturally slots a lot of contradictory information into. But then he also says we have um, access to a second system, yeah, called system two, which is a system that can take in more complex information. It's the one we call upon when um, we're trying to do, you know, long division or buy a house or think about, which, um, like, you know, humidifier to buy on Amazon or whatever. These are, um, this kind of, like, more complex processing is available, but it's arduous for us. Like, it's hard and it drains our resources. And he basically says, like, 
we're more susceptible to making mistakes when we're tired, when we're stressed, um, when we've already been using system two a lot that day. So I think there are, you know, ways that we as a society can continue to kind of check ourselves and push ourselves into these more complex um, forms of taking Mm -hmm. in information, but that, yeah, it's definitely like in an ideal world, our lawyers and and our judges and our court reporters, the people that control our social, our our criminal justice system, these people would be well rested and, you know, ready to take on nuance and complexity, but it's so often not the case, right? So I think um, as consumers of, of this information and like these kinds of stories, I think I was always trying to check myself and just say like, but how do I know that? And how do I know that's true? And just constantly trying to like engage with that system too, but it's certainly tiring. Um, So we can do our best. uh, And I think decrease the amount of mistakes we make, but I think Kahneman kind of comes away saying like, we can't ever eliminate those kinds of mistakes. You talk about at the end of the book um, that the book cares about the violence and death, um, which began before Vicki and Nancy were killed. And then mm-hmm. it obviously cares as well about um, understanding the other aspects of a place and of um, West Virginia and Appalachians. And I'm wondering, coming away from having written the book, what your sense is about what it takes to change a place and a, or a person. Um, I think one of the last things you talk about in the mm-hmm. book is um, uh, one of like a third generation um, child who's talking about wanting to stay and face the hardships of trying to mm-hmm. to change his place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's so hard and I wouldn't possibly, um, you know, purport to know uh, the kinds of changes that are really taking place in a community like Pocahontas County um, or, you know, in the larger space of like the Appalachian region. Uh, I think, I hope what my book can do is again, sort of speak alongside um, a lot of those people who are from the region who are having those conversations and, and kind of add to the information and the voices that people can hear as they think about these questions of what does it mean to be living in Southern Southern or Central Appalachia today, or, you know, specifically in um, this part of West Virginia, which is really, it's up on the border against Virginia. So in many ways, this kind of like borderland of neither nor like not quite the South, not quite the North, um, not quite in a zone of like mainstream America, but not so far away from it. So yeah, the part that you're referring to is um, a really interesting young person who I worked with in the program in Pocahontas County and who is a trans man and a, a young person trying to figure out how to survive and thrive in um, contemporary Appalachia. And he, I think it's important to mention too that um, West Virginia has the uh, highest number per capita of, of trans young people of any state. So I think it's important to like always acknowledge that in these places we think of as often, you know, monolithically white or monolithically straight or conservative, that there really is like a thriving community of um, queer life of people of color of people who are really like actively working to create um, communities and organizing spaces where there can be more justice and more open conversations. Certainly, um, West Virginia has been characterized as like the heart of Trump country lately, but 
we know that, you know, rich white people voted for Trump in far greater numbers than poor white people did. And West Virginia probably would have gotten for Bernie Sanders if Hillary Clinton had not become the candidate. So it's a much more complicated place. And I think that it is changing all the time and that um, people, you know, young people, people who are staying in the region, choosing to stay rather than leave are you know really doing a ton of cool work. And I'm just really excited to see you know, what happens. Okay, I'm just going to disagree with you because I think you're the perfect person and very qualified to, to answer that question because <laughs> you 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 were willing to share the parallels of your experience with many of the battles that that individuals are fighting and that the community is fighting mm-hmm. in that area um, because you were willing to recognize and come close to the demons that you were facing in your life at the time of you were writing Mm -hmm. the book and the experience you were having of creating your sense of identity and the desire to maybe um, deal with with some of the the guilt you had from your upbringing and then um, and then Mm -hmm. living a very being willing to live a very different life and and being very open to it and and to evaluate and assess um, as you made a shift, um, which you you did, right, you have Mm -hmm. changed through through the process um, of writing the book and prior to writing the book, Um, you talk about the, the battle of feeling the the pressure to, to comply, compliance, 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 and then mm-hmm. fighting, 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 mm-hmm. and the desire to be free. Um, so I'm guessing you could probably talk for all mm-hmm. of humanity, not just um, West <laughs> Virginia. Um, and I, I'd confidently listen to your answer. Um, and oh, and thank you. <laughs> with that, um, you, you have a quote in the book, you say, you cannot treat women only for a disease of which men are the main carriers, nor I knew could you punish every man who fell ill, um, which okay. seems to be maybe a crux of the case and then a crux of, of your um, experience of, of living there and leaving and going back and then writing the book. How is that speaking to you now? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it sounds a little woo-woo maybe, but writing the book just taught me, you know, how much I don't know and how much we all don't know about um, probably, you know, most most richly maybe about sexism and also about gender and also about um, Appalachia in the sense that, like, I just, I feel like living in that place was... Um, it rewired my brain uh, in terms of my understanding of America and um, what it meant to live in a community that really functioned tightly and to have a family um, and to love a place, you know, living there was like no other place on earth. It's the most beautiful space I've ever seen ever. Um, And I think that there's just, a kind of um, magic and a kind of unknowing that comes from living in that space uh, that I never would have had access to had I not, you know, been there for several years. And that there's a way that like this book taught me just, it gave me some like magic or God or some um, just that kind of spiritual force where we remember that the world is big and forces are big and we are, our human brains are, are wired in certain ways that kind of keep us from knowing all those truths all the time. And there really was um, the process of writing the book really was for me a kind of like 
spiritual process, if that doesn't sound too strange, of just, um, you know, learning that um, we as humans, like, we just don't know and we don't have the answers to all these problems and that sexism and misogyny and gender, like, it's all so, um, it both is true and it both is, like, this thing that we must grapple with and also, you know, everyone's truths are valid at the same time. Um, and, like, the, str- the suffering of women um, that is true, like, at the hands of men does not negate, like, the suffering of men under sexism and that, like, everybody's pain counts and everybody's pain is true at the same time. Yeah. There's there's such a, I want to just um, hit on two points. There's such a contradiction in our world, not just our society, but in our world, you know, you preface with, oh, I don't want this to sound too woo-woo, and yet you think the amount of <laughs> people in the world who believe in a God, who spend um, mm-hmm. hours and, and hours of their, their days and, and weeks and months um, devoted to religious practices, um, and, mm-hmm. and the characters, and I had to stop saying characters because these are real people. The people in the book yeah. who, who even Franklin, who is this, um, serial, uh, killer, um, who ends up spending the last part of his life before he's executed focused on, um, trying to understand existence and spirituality and who he is and um, finding some peace in understanding his behavior and his life path. Um, And the connection of that spirituality then to the earth and to our physical existence, that that should be something that we shouldn't feel like ashamed of talking about or admitting that it's something we're thinking about. And and even Jacob Beard, who spent nine years in jail um, for a murder, which he was then exonerated, murders he was exonerated for and, and has claimed the entire time he didn't commit. He, You ask him in, in the interview, and, and he explains very definitely like why he keeps going back to West Virginia yeah. and what, what is that pull and that mm-hmm. sense of community and belonging and, and beauty. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, the part you're referring to about Joseph Paul Franklin, you know, that, yeah, I did an interview with, Oh, this woman, and it's complicated for all those who are listening. I hope you read the book because I'm going to just summarize. But essentially, um, yes, this this guy, Joseph Paul Franklin, committed a string of murders throughout the 70s and 80s. Um, he killed these two young men in Salt Lake City, Utah, and they were jogging with um, these two uh, white women friends of theirs. And one of those those women, really, she was a girl. She was, you know, 15. Um, went on to try to do the right thing and, and testify uh, that this these events had happened and, you know, that she had been there and saw her friends get killed. And then as a result of that, um, yeah, ended up, like, suffering this great um, injustice at the hands of a, someone, of a prosecutor, a guy that was supposed to, you know, bring justice and, and protect her and, and failed to do that. And uh, talking with her was one of the most, like, difficult and also beautiful experiences of writing this book because yeah, she was really the one that told me like that she believes in all these forces of darkness and light and that she ended up making contact with Joseph Paul Franklin um, at his request before he died, before he was executed by the state and she felt him leave this earth and she felt him, his spirit. And these, I was raised in an extremely like intellectual and rational based household. Like I never would have, believed this I think um before going through the process of this book but 
you know, speaking with her was one of the most um, strange and spiritual experiences. And I just, I totally believed it. And I totally believe everything she had to say. And also family members of the women who died who talk about, you know, feeling their uh, murdered loved ones, like spirits uh, in, in themselves and in the room and at different moments in their lives. There's just so much about these really um, difficult topics that we'll never know. And I apologize because I don't remember if it was Vicky or Nancy's sister, but in the book she talks about um, her experience the day that her sister was killed and that she right? could uh, feel it yeah. and thought she was going to die and wrote a will out. And I mean, I, uh, I it, yeah. it, it's hard to write that away, you know, in, in our minds. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. why we want to or why society sort of wants us to. And, and, and it just seems like such a contradiction. And I hadn't thought about it in that sense until yeah. we, we were just talking. Um, yeah. So what is it that um, you would like the reader to come away with in their understanding about um, West Virginia and then also about um, about gender equity and, and the path forward? Mm, well, I think I just kept coming back over and over again to this idea of, of the both and, that, you know, multiple truths are true at the same time. And we have this impulse, as we've been discussing, to reduce that to turn it into a story of like, well, really these people were harmed worse or, but really this is where things went wrong. And I think if we can resist that as much as possible, um, this idea that like one truth must overwhelm another truth, but really just push ourselves to hold things at the same time and make space for multiple stories, multiple realities um, without feeling like we need to, you know, reduce them to, action steps or things that um, can be uh, more neatly filed away, I really think will be in a lot better shape as, as a culture thinking about justice, um, thinking about community. And I think that, um, yeah, I didn't want to just write like a super idealized, um, beautiful, like sort of fake like elegy to this place where I lived. I wanted to also acknowledge its difficulties, um, its struggles, the things that people are really dealing with in this area, uh, and also without making, um, you know, without falling into the stereotypes of, and all the ways that this region has been harmfully portrayed. And so if we can always just remember that things are both, that, that people are human, and human really means flawed, but also trying. Um, I do believe that, that that's, that the way forward may not be um, something that we can achieve, uh, you know, by law. It may not be something that we can achieve with a single story or a single book, but that if we can kind of push ourselves to, yeah, to hold multiple truths and multiple stories always at the same time, um, that's a kind of thinking shift that I've tried to make in my own brain and, and that I hope that the book um, inspires people to think about more deeply. Well, I think it unquestionably does. And I think Carl Jung would be very proud of you. <laughs> Shining his light on you as you speak. Um, oh, well, thank you. Emma, thank you so, so much um, for yeah, the work you've you. done and for the book and for joining us on the show.
for sure. This was such a fun and lovely and more interesting conversation. And, and I appreciate you having me. Oh, I'm so glad. Okay. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, so fun. I appreciate okay. it. Me too. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye.